In my place condemned he stood. The biblical pattern of atonement. This is part five. We sang in that last chorus, his righteousness. I will boast in Christ alone, his righteousness and not my own. And the doctrine behind that is called the imputed righteousness of Christ. It comes from Paul's words, especially in the book of Philippians, where he talks about being clothed not with my own righteousness, but with his. So the clear teaching that we sing about all the time is that the righteousness that lets me come to the throne of grace and will one day get me into God's eternal kingdom isn't my own righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ. Where do my sins go? Well, the flip side of that same doctrine is Christ bore my sins. Isaiah 53 and a host of other passages. I am clothed with his righteousness. He goes to the cross clothed with my sins. That's why the doctrine of the sinless life of Christ is so important. He's not dying for his own sins. And he's not dying just at the hands of the Jewish leaders and the Roman soldiers, as Isaiah 53 makes clear. It was the Father's will to crush him. So the punishment of sin, Jesus bears on the cross And that's what we've been studying for about, well, this will be five weeks. The title this morning, Is Christ the Fulfillment of the Substitutionary Passover Lamb in Exodus chapter 12? If you have your Bibles, I hope you do. Don't take my word for this. You shouldn't do that in any church. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 19. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 19. Peter writes to this group of Christians suffering pretty intense persecution to encourage them. Peter's a fairly old man as he writes. 113 of 1 Peter. Therefore, preparing your minds for action... And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your, and look at these words, former ignorance. That's not an insult. There's a profound insight there. And it's this, until you're, totally devoted to Jesus as Lord, you don't see how you were cheating yourself by living for your own selfish desires. At that time, you thought that you were living in freedom. And Peter writes, and he says, upon knowing Christ as Lord, you come to look back in amazement at the kind of ignorance and bondage. So that's what he's talking about, your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who 
who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Wait a minute. I thought we sang this morning, he delivered us from all our fears. And those are the fears that come from condemnation, not measuring up, not being good enough, not being accepted. Now he's talking about loving God so much, I I don't want to displease him. You see the two kinds of fears? Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. That's where you are right now. You might think this is home. This is the time of your exile. Knowing that you were ransomed, not just forgiven, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, look at these words, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. I'm going to come back to that at the close of this teaching. The the premise of the last two teachings from Exodus 12 was, was this, that Israel was delivered in two important yet different ways as she escaped the tyranny of Pharaoh's Egypt. First, she was delivered from the oppression of Egypt itself. And second, she was delivered from the wrath of God in the death of the firstborn as she put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of of her houses. And here's the point. Israel needed to kill a Passover lamb. Israel, like Egypt, needed to be protected by the shed blood of the lamb painted on the doorposts of the households if, if she was to avoid the exact same judgment that would fall on Egypt, judgment that was from God himself, according to the divinely inspired text. And so it makes you wonder. Was God being unjust to reveal his wrath against Israel the same way he revealed it against Egypt? Well, you might think that if you didn't have some of the background. Israel was not holy all the while she was living in Egypt. It's often overlooked. But if you look at Exodus 20, 5 to 8, Thus says the Lord God, on the day when I chose Israel, I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob, making myself known to them in the land of Egypt. I swore to them saying, I am the Lord your God. That day I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into the land that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. And I said to them, cast away the detestable things you feast your eyes on. Every one of you, do not defile yourself with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. They rebelled against me. It's Israel. They were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols in Egypt. Then I said, I would pour out my 
wrath upon them, spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. So there's clearly, clearly divine wrath. I mean, there's clearly divine wrath in those verses. It just, it just can't be cleverly swept away like many contemporary writers try to do. It's just there. So you see, God was not arbitrary or unjust in his judgments on Egypt and Israel the night of the Passover. He never is arbitrary. God's wrath against sin is always a righteous response. It's justice. Justice is not just making sure the poor and the needy get their share. Justice is also making sure the guilty get their due. There's two sides to justice. J.I. Packer's words on the righteous wrath of God against sin are just some of the best I've read. This is righteous anger. This is the right reaction of moral perfection against moral perversity in the creature. So far from the manifestation of God's wrath in punishing sin being morally doubtful, the thing that would be morally doubtful would be for him to not show his wrath in this way. God is not just. That is, he does not act in a way that is right. He does not do what is proper unless he inflicts, inflicts upon all sin the wrongdoing, the penalty that it deserves. So there's more to social justice than just the social side. There's divine justice. Now make sure, make sure you pluck the rich meaning of Packer's opening sentence. This is righteous anger, the right reaction of moral perfection against moral perversity in the creature. So, so when Packer says God's wrath is the right reaction, he means that if God didn't manifest his wrath against sin, he would not be doing the right thing. He would be doing the wrong thing. He would not be a good God. He would be a bad God. If you live in a land where the leader has power to reveal his might against wrongdoers, but he refuses to ever do that, then you don't have a good leader, you have a bad leader. Think about it for a minute. Would you rather live under a dictator who didn't allow people to do anything or under a dictator who allowed everybody to do absolutely everything? And I mean everything imaginable without any restraint or any punishment. Well, both dictatorships would be wicked for sure, but I think the second dictator is more dangerous than the first. And so Israel, like everyone else dwelling in Egypt, was under God's judgment unless there was the shed blood of that slain lamb. But note, 
The Passover is a demonstration of God's mercy and God's love. But it's also more than a demonstration of just mercy and love. The, the blood of the sacrificed lamb averts. The blood of the lamb transfers by substitution the wrath of God away from the household. The lamb must die. The blood says that the sin isn't just ignored. So, so there's, there's more than love and forgiveness manifested because we need more than love and forgiveness. There's also the meeting out of justice. God's wrath is poured out against sin. The lamb must die in place of the firstborn, that dark Passover night. And in this passing over, of the household where the blood was shed and applied, we see this great prefiguring, this picture of the death of Christ. Jesus, God the Son, God was in Christ, comes as the great Lamb of God to bring the same twofold deliverance from both sin and its bondage and from God's spotless divine justice and its judgment against sin. Romans, he is just and the justifier. That's the beauty of Jesus that, of course, that Old Testament lamb could never do. Is that a valid conclusion, what I've been saying? Is Christ really the intended fulfillment of this Passover account? Or are we just reaching for what we'd like to have as an interpretation of Exodus? That's what I want to study in the next little while. Don't panic. Point number one. The first recorded adult description of Jesus' saving role is that of a lamb. The next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, this is the idea, look at this, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was he was before me. So when you see Jesus hanging on the cross, remember, this is God. Before I make more comments, let me just point out that this Lamb of God doesn't just forgive Don Horban's sin. The Lamb, according to Scripture, takes away Don Horban's sin. And I'm, I'm, I'm immediately made to picture, remember that second lamb and goat, one that gets slain and the other one, the priest comes, I'm not taking the time to look it up, lays his hand on the head of that goat. And it's, it's a picture. Of course, nothing actually could happen. It's a picture of the transferring this guy who brought his sacrifice. He's a sinner. One of the lambs, one of the goats dies. The other one, the priest puts his hand on the head and then everybody drives it out of the camp. Never to be seen again, as far as it can go. The Lamb of God, he takes away Don Horbin's sin. 
There's something that he carries that I should have borne. He does something in my place. I mean, those words of John the Baptist, they're just so quotable. Everybody knows them. That's actually part of the problem. We just, we just don't feel how freaky those words really are. I mean, imagine the very first time God the Son, as an adult, we get introduced. The maker of heaven and earth is going to be introduced to the world in his ministry capacity. And he's not introduced as omnipotent. He's not introduced as regal. He's not introduced as prophetic. He's not even introduced as angelic. He's introduced as a farm animal. Is that how you do things? What is going on? And what's going on is a divinely planned unfolding of a theology that was introduced earlier, right at the birth of Jesus. It all fits together. As he, Joseph, considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She shall bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will, he will save his people from their sins. Notice, he will save his people. So once again, the issue is it's, it's forgiveness, but it's not just forgiveness. Somehow sinners need saving from something. The angel tells Joseph, Jesus was born to save his people from their sins. Well, great. How? How will he do it? What's the process? Will he come and try and just teach them a better moral code? Will he come and just give them a better example and hope they can try to follow it? Will he tell them, God is love, don't worry so much? Exactly how will Jesus save people from their sins? That's what John is telling everyone. I mean, surely... There are many wonderful things to know about Jesus. He would teach, he would bless, he would heal, he would work miracles. He would demonstrate infinite love and compassion. But the first thing this watching crowd, this religious crowd, needed to know when they're introduced by John the Baptist to Jesus is that he would be a lamb. He's the lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. This is a, it's a Christmas truth that is easily missed. You've seen it since we had little kids up in their bathrobes and hats being wise men. No room in the inn. Was that just a mistake? Was the timing bad? I mean, someone should have given up their room. No, 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 no. It's all, it's all part of the plan. It's intentional. More than that, it's extremely prophetic. Where else would a lamb be born? Lambs aren't born in hospitals. Lambs are born in stables. 
So the process for the saving, the carrying away of my sins, and the process of the removal of God's judgment on my sins, all of that was in this lamb in our place. It's important. What it means is John saw right away that even Jesus, God the Son, couldn't just pronounce forgiveness. He would have to bear the cost of it. He would die the death of the Passover lamb in Exodus 12, exactly in the same way. Point number two. As Jesus explained his own death, he framed it in terms of the Passover event. Let's let Jesus talk about his death. If anybody ought to know how it worked, are we agreed? If anybody ought to know how Jesus' death saves us, he should have some idea. Let's see what Jesus has to say. Luke 22, 7 to 15. Then came the day of unleavened bread on, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And so Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says, where is the room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepare it there. And they found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, Jesus speaks. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus According to Luke, verse 15 was earnest. He was earnest about breaking the bread and drinking the cup, both of which he said were reminders of his own spilled blood and torn body. Jesus is going to tell them, this bread is my broken body. This cup is my shed blood. That's what he's going to tell them. He was earnest that these reminders of his coming death, he wanted them given to the disciples, and they would be prepared to understand it as they gathered for the Passover. 15, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Underscore that word before. Jesus is using the Passover to explain the meaning of his death before his death takes place. I mean, clearly that's what those words mean. I want you to I want this image in your head, this Passover image. I want that in your head as you think about the cup and the bread. I want you to have that understanding before I die because that's what's happening in my death on the cross. Three. Jesus saw the coming event of the cross as a cup that had to be drained. Now, I'm not talking about the cup that was passed around to his disciples. The cup we still 
sort of symbolically drink. I'm thinking about this point. I'm kind of drawn into Jesus' words as he prays to the Father, thinking about the cross. You can see those words recorded, sacred words in Matthew 26. You know these, this account. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. Remain here and watch with me. Going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Let this cup pass from me. Those are strange words. And it prompts us to ask, where did Jesus get this idea that his suffering, his coming death on the cross, his suffering, where did Jesus get the idea that it's like a cup? Was he just sort of reaching randomly for an image? No. The answer is, is profound. Jesus understood the nature of his coming death and the way he was about to give his life a ransom for many. And Jesus knows his Old Testament very well. He was constantly quoting it from memory. Constantly. Let's look at some texts. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Isaiah 51, 17, wake yourself. Wake yourself. O stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, very specifically, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl of the cup of staggering. Jeremiah, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath. Do you see a pattern here? Make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. And so I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me to drink it. Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, its kings, its officials, to make them a desolation and a waste, a hissing and a curse as to this day. Okay, I read three, and they're not light reading. Could have read 25. The dread of the cross for Jesus wasn't Rome. It wasn't the Jewish authorities. It wasn't the thrones, the thorns, sorry. It wasn't the nails, and it wasn't the spear. Jesus, he's, he's this cup. This cup, that's what I don't want. This is what rang in the sky. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 2746. So the cup, let it pass from me, is, is the forsakenness. 
from Father God. The judgment, the wrath for. Peter specifically links our being ransomed and the shed blood of Christ with the perfect lamb of the Old Testament Passover. I'm trying to show you that this is not like if you're really clever, you can find a verse and a couple of words and you can build the theology of the atonement. In the title of this series is the biblical pattern of atonement. Go through the Old Testament passages. Go through all the New Testament passages. 1 Peter 1, 14 to 19. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. This is how I opened the teaching with this text. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as gold or silver, but with the, the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So very quickly. There's a reason this text is important. Because we know from the rest of the biblical teaching on the atoning work of Christ that it's his death. By his death, we are saved. I know it seems like a silly point, but for example, if they had merely cut Jesus and he shed some drops of blood and then died of old age, would we be redeemed? The answer, by the way, is no. No, we wouldn't. The penalty of sin is death, the Bible says. Jesus died in my place to deliver me from the bondage of sin and the fear of death. The writer of Hebrews says so. Paul says Jesus took the sting of death for us, and he did that by dying and then rising from the dead. And yet, Peter doesn't talk about the death of Christ. Did you notice in this text? He writes about the blood of Christ that was shed. And the reason it's the blood is because it was the blood of that sacrificed lamb that was painted on the doorposts of the house. Now, clearly that lamb died. We know that. But it's, it's the blood in that Passover account that gets all the attention. That's why Peter says he shed his blood. I have one more text, five. You still with me? Okay, five. The Apostle Paul makes the most direct statement of all that Jesus died as the fulfillment of that Old Testament Passover lamb. First Corinthians 5, 7. Cleanse out the old leaven. Remember all the references to leaven in that old covenant account? And I didn't take the time to read them all again because I read quite a few texts anyway. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. That's us. Isn't that flattering? Got a new lump here. As you really are unleavened. Could this be clearer? Could this possibly be clearer? For Christ... Say that with me. 
our Passover lamb. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now, admittedly, Paul's purpose in that text isn't theological. He's actually addressing sexual immorality in the Corinthian congregation. And his caution is timely for the church today that sin can never be tolerated in the body of Christ, not only because it's wrong, which it is, but because it's leaven-like. It, it gets in like yeast. People see others sin, and they don't look like they're being judged for their sin, and that encourages me to carelessness in areas of my life. The same area or different ones. So sins must be cleaned out of the body, just like Israel was to clean the leaven out. Now the church must root itself in a passion for purity, and the reason God gives is related to our study. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain. And he means, he means, just like they were delivered from Egypt and got rid of all the leaven, and they ate that Passover lamb fully dressed so that in the morning they could take off and enter into a new way of life. That's what Paul says. Jesus was our Passover lamb. He bore God's wrath. We have been delivered. Not just from the guilt of sin. Praise God, we have. But released into new life. Without the old leaven, all the things that corrupted and polluted and distracted and caused us to cool spiritually. Paul said, get get rid of all that. Israel was released from Egypt into a new identity. And you've been delivered by the shed blood of that Passover lamb who, who carried away our sins, who ransomed us from our sins. So here's the conclusion of the matter. It's no pipe dream to attach the death of our Lord to its Old Testament roots. Everyone in the New Testament does this. Everyone. The New Testament endorses the Passover meaning of Christ's death on the cross. He, like that Old Testament Passover lamb, bore the wrath of God against our sin. Both freedom from sin, deliverance from wrath, and a new identity. It's the only gospel the scriptures know. Pastor Don, what about it? Aren't there other views, other aspects of the atonement? And there are. We'll look at all of them in this series. But the umbrella over them all that gives meaning our Passover lamb brought about our deliverance from the just wrath of a holy God and released us into a new identity in following Christ and the power of the Spirit. And so, Lord Jesus... It's enough for children to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But as we grow in you, we need to know where the Bible says what it says, what it means in what it says, how old covenant is related to new, what happened on the cross, how did it work? Surely this is at the foundation of everything else we believe as Christians. 
This is foundational. It's not peripheral. But it isn't just theological. It should. It should bring confidence. This, this is why that devotional, we have a sympathetic high priest, the wrath of God. Jesus delivered us from that. God was in Christ. God delivers us from God's wrath by bearing the price of it himself. Help us to walk in newness of life. In your name I pray and I thank you. Amen. Amen.